Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well and hard to believe uh, tomorrow is uh, Friday. You know, when I was on the air last, uh, we were um, remembering those whom uh, lost their lives 22 years ago, being September 11th. And at the same time, we were also um, discussing about um, the importance of honoring those whom did make the ultimate sacrifice, being those uh, 40 passengers and crew on board uh, United Flight 93 whom um, fought back the hijackers and were able to um, prevail and not only save countless people's lives, but save um, government uh, governmental institutions in Washington, D.C., most notably the White House and the uh, United States Capitol. So, Thank heavens that uh, there, there were those whom did take a stand against evil, even though they lost their lives, but they also saved countless other people's lives that day 22 years ago. So um, so th- uh, their spirits uh, should never be forgotten, to say the least. Now, uh, what I do know is that um, we are now uh, at the point in the uh, series that we're doing, a book topic series, I should say, uh, A Signal Victory, the Lake Erie Campaign of 1812-1813. We are now at the point, folks, where um, the real thing is going to start. You know, I know we've probably spent at least, uh, what, eight episodes. Well, besides the uh, prologue or intro, we've spent at least seven other episodes getting to this point. But, you know, we do have to be reminded of the fact that a battle just doesn't happen overnight. A battle happens because other events, you know, lead up to the battle itself. But it is important to know. It, it's important to know what happens first before the battle, because if all we do is focus on the battle itself, then we lose focus on what led up to it. Because what leads up to a battle is just as powerful of a story as the actual battle itself. So in this uh, podcast segment episode, we are going to get into the introduction to the actual battle, which will include uh, combat, learning about um, combat activity. We will also learn about um, the concerns that uh, crewmen have, not just on one side, but technically on both sides. We also will learn... Uh, of course, when I say the concerns that crewmen have, we know the captains or um, the, the commodores or anyone within the inner circle, um, con- they have uh, various concerns, not only for their well-being, but that of their uh, crew below them on board the multiple ships. But I think it is definitely going to be worth pointing out about, um, about the uh, regular crew and the concerns they have. Because, uh, as we all know, it's one thing to, for uh, someone or for individuals to be partaking in a battle, whether it's by land or by sea. The chances, the chances of coming home alive are not guaranteed. You know, yes, you can be injured, but you never know just how badly your injury could be to where if, you know, you're not guaranteed that you might be alive within say three months after your injury you know in the end your injury could be so bad that it sadly could result in loss of life and I think we do have to be reminded that in 1812 there are no anesthetics or 1813 I should say 
Uh, there is no such thing as anesthetics. I will probably mention it again in this uh, podcast segment episode that the uh, about uh, the lack of anesthetics. Uh, pardon me for giving it away, but but I do believe we have to be reminded of the fact that there was a time when there was no such thing as modern day anesthetics that could put you to sleep or ease your uh, pain so that you wouldn't have to be in, um, in a current uh, bad state of misery. So in other words, I think it'd be fair to say that um, given that there was no such things as anesthetics, there were two things they probably could have done for you back then. They could have um, given you a lot of whiskey to knock you out, or they would have just made you uh, bite on something rubbery to prevent you from screaming and uh, flailing um, to where, um, or they put uh, make you bite on a wooden spoon. I'm not trying to gross you all out or anything, but that's really what they did back then. You had to be able to tough it out. I mean, don't you think we still have to tough it out today to some extent? Yes, but the nice thing is we have anesthetics. But I will also admit that there are probably places in the world, even to this day, that... Um, that don't have access to um, anesthetics, um, say, like in, a, in, um, in, in such industrialized nations like the United States or uh, the United Kingdom, for example. So um, we've come a long way with anesthetics, but it is something that shouldn't be taken for granted still. But uh, we will also learn about uh, whom strikes first in terms of um, open combat on the water. We will also learn to see that... Um, we will also learn as to whether or not uh, one side's um, firing is effective or not, and um, and uh, how um, the ship. We'll also learn about how one ship takes a beating, and how other ships nearby uh, respond to that one particular ship's uh, struggles. So, uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover in this um, first part of a, a two-part series on the actual. Um, physical battle of uh, Lake Erie. So here we go, folks, with our first uh, leadoff question. Come around 7 a.m. on the morning of September 10th, 1813, had Oliver Perry's flotilla, a.k.a. fleet, gone about removing their anchors? Well, the answer is yes. Largely considering that the entire British fleet under Lieutenant Barclay's command was now in plain sight. So Barclay's fleet, they're not like right up close to Perry, but Perry can, you know, spot them obviously uh, through means of a spyglass, which would be the equivalent of what we might think of as a telescope. But I would imagine he has access to a spyglass that will allow him to um, look over the horizon and see in the near distance that Barclay's uh, flotilla, his uh, fleet of six ships, are now making their way into um, near proximity of where we stand. Oliver Perry, however, knows that um, he knows for one that this battle is going to be um, an intense one. He, yes, he knows that he may have more ships than Barclay, but that, but he also knows that that doesn't guarantee a victory. So for Oliver Perry, he knew going forward that with his forces having the upper hand and overall firepower, that they would need to take advantage of the situation by means of a weather gauge. 
Now, of course, when I think of a weather gauge, I mean, to me, that sounds like an instrument, something that might resemble that of a compass. Actually, folks, when I uh, looked up uh, what a uh, weather gauge itself meant, it actually doesn't have to, it does not pertain to a physical instrument. A weather gauge basically is a favorable position for a fighting sailing vessel relative to where its opponent stands or lies uh, via opposite direction or proximity. The British fleet were well windward of Perry's fleet. So what does it mean when you say windward? Windward here, folks, means that that uh, one side is positioned towards uh, the direction from which the winds were coming upwind. And upwind refers to moving in the opposite direction. So, so the British fleet may be well windward of Perry's fleet, meaning that, they are, that their position is um, from the direction in which the winds are coming upwind, uh, moving in the opposite direction. We have to be reminded, folks, that, you know, we don't have um, modern-day equipment for starting a ship or for starting a vessel, let alone. So in the War of 1812, we are still relying on wind to get our uh, vessels from point A to point B. Yes, six years earlier in 1807, as I've mentioned many of times, not, not only in this series but in other series, um, especially after having done uh, The Fire of His Genius, Rob, Robert Fulton and the American Dream. Yes, Robert Fulton's invention in 1807 of the uh, steamboat um, that was uh, navigated via uh, means of an actual steam engine uh, up from uh, the Hudson River up to uh, Albany, New York. Uh, basically, he uh, you know took the uh, vessel, the Claremont, which was named in honor of Robert Livingston's estate known as the Claremont that overlooked the Hudson River on, in uh, present-day Columbiana County. But, uh, yes, Robert Fulton's invention was a um, milestone in 1807, but not everyone has caught on to it um, in the few short years after the invention. Uh, so, you know, in the War of 1812, all vessels are still relying upon uh, the means of sail. Uh, what what objective did Oliver Perry face before him after his fleet went about removing their anchors? Perry sought to clear all things outstanding, obstacles, as he needed to navigate past the Rattlesnake Island and then move ahead into the wind via a westward direction of Lieutenant Barclay's current positioning. It's amazing to think that, folks, that there was a time when um, captains and commodores, you know, they had to rely on the actual wind to get them from point A to point B. And if the winds aren't favorable, then they're going to have to um, stay put where they're at. They're not going to be able to lift their anchor and uh, be able to go onward to their uh, next destination or let alone final destination. Wind currently blowing from the southwest at seven knots. Because the wind, I should say, was currently blowing from the southwest at seven knots, Perry's forces would have to literally sail directly straight into the wind. By sailing straight 
directly into the wind, this would become a more difficult task. Fighting without a weather gauge, or fighting without the weather gauge, meant further subjection to um, unfavorable battle position. So, what other means is Perry? What other means could Perry do? And he actually did, in terms of modifying the situation. What all do you think he uh, did? He engaged in uh, what's called tacking where he changed his ship's course by putting the wheel down and proceeding to go back and forth per the current wind direction from the southwest. Tell you, these uh, winds from the southwest are playing havoc on Perry's fleet, and it's almost as if they are, I know this might sound harsh to say, but you almost wonder if the winds are cursing Perry from the southwest. It's almost as if they don't want him to get over the... It, Perhaps the winds don't want him to um, be able to uh, thoroughly navigate Rattlesnake Island to where he can, um, where his uh, fleet can fully uh, clear uh, that point. Well, it got to the point uh, just shy of about 10 a.m. where he decided to just throw in the towel altogether. And we're not talking about a complete forfeiture or a forfeit, but he was thinking about throwing in the towel and saying, look, I can't clear Rattlesnake Island. We're going to have to come up with some other plan. I don't know what it's going to be, but this is not simply not meant to be. But um, despite uh, officers' uh, solid leadership under challenging circumstances, crewmen endured agonizing uh, results. What kind of agonizing results? Shipwork such as blisters forming on their hands rubbed raw to falling over tackle. And what, I, what do I mean by tackle here, folks? Ropes, blocks. So it wasn't just um, Perry that was having a hard time, folks. The crewmen are having some a rough go of it. I mean, I can't imagine um, dealing with... Um, rope and not just uh, fall, tripping over the rope but uh, but constantly working with the rope um, left and right to where in a short amount of time you do get blisters we're not talking minor blisters but it could be major blisters but here's the the good news folks in the midst of Perry almost throwing in the towel a sheer stroke of luck benefited him not just him but the the rest of the flotilla thanks to um, a nice unforeseen present by mother nature a sudden a sudden uh, change in the uh, wind direction changed a sudden um, a sudden uh, moment's notice that is with regards to uh, wind direction has changed well the winds were going from the southwest now, all of a sudden, they've changed to the southeast, where Perry has simply obtained a miraculous stroke of unforeseen luck. I just wonder, um, with this change in wind, though, you know, it's one thing, yes, for the winds to be more favorable, but does it automatically mean that you can strike a blow, an immediate blow at the opponent via the use of your uh, weaponry aboard the, um, aboard, uh, the ships? Here's our next question. Uh, as a result of the winds changing direction from southwest to southeast, 
Was Oliver Perry able to alter course in an ultimately clear Rattlesnake Island? Yes. He did so despite sailing upwind and moving opposite direction. More power to him. Lieutenant Barclay uh, navigated his fleet via a westerly route or course per um, what is known as a larboard tack. Larboard, folks, is spelled L-A-R-B-O-A-R-D. Larboard tack. I had never heard of this term until having uh, read this book, but it does pertain to uh, nautical um, information. Uh, whenever a ship is going larboard, that is... Uh, when um, a captain or a, a commander is looking forward on the ship's left side, given the wind itself is blowing per that side, both fleets came to one another per an angle of 15 degrees, sailing west by north. Perry saw up close for the first time a br the British fleet per battle line alignment. So how do you think um, Lieutenant Barclay's battle line alignment is going to look like? You've got two ships, being HMS Detroit and Charlotte, the big guys. What we might call the uh, sloop of war ships or the warships, they are the, you know, the big guys. Then you have uh, two brigs and then a schooner and a sloop. After Perry saw... Um, Lieutenant Barclay's uh, battle line alignment, he went about reshifting his line of combat by placing schooners Ariel and Scorpion off his ship's weather bow, meaning both schooners would be turned towards the wind following by modifying the other lineup of vessels Caledonia, Niagara, Summers, Porcupine, Tigris, and Trip, which would follow Lawrence per that exact order. Gosh, think of this as kind of like a basketball lineup of some sorts or um, or a uh, coordinator with football like offense, defense or special teams in terms of how you're going to um, how you're going to come up with uh, some new plays in terms of uh, confusing your opponent. You know, in other words, like calling audibles, you know, OK, yes, I may have one lineup right here, but all of a sudden I might be able to change it. And given that the wind direction has changed to instead of being southwest and now southeast, Perry can make these um, necessary adjustments at the last minute. If the winds stayed in the southwest, uh, chances are of the chances of him being able to make these kind of alignments or um, realignments are, are slim to none. In the midst of in the midst of ships per both sides getting prepared for uh, combat, is it fair to say that crewmen were moving very quickly via small steps? Uh, yes, considering making sure that everything before them on the main or uh, top level deck and below was done properly to avoid internal mishaps. So, you know, it's easy when you're multitasking, it's easy to think, well, you know, John Smith is running left and right from one end to another. Well, if if you can do that, that's great. But given that um, a lot of last-minute uh, preparations are going on, 
you have to move quick, but you just do it in small steps because you never know. You might trip on something, you get hurt, and you're out of um, out of the action. So you have to, you know, you, you do have to watch where you're going, given that it's not just, you know, a couple of people on the top deck. We've got maybe 50 people, depending on, say, if it's like a ship such as the Lawrence or the Niagara. Uh, you might have more people on that um, ship, say, versus, um, versus say, uh, Ariel and Scorpion, which would have been your uh, two um, schooner um, ships for uh, the American side. Now, um, what I'm going to mention here, I'm going to mention a term or two that I know most of you probably don't know, but it is worth pointing out because it does pertain to um, what uh, it pertains to some of the many things that crewmen would have been um, getting ready to do right as um, combat is about to um, take centerfold stage. There's a term called tumpion, T-O-M-P-I-O-N, tumpion. I didn't know what a tumpion was until I read this book, but a tumpion is a wooden plug. And why is a tumpion being a wooden plug important to talk about here? Well, tumpions, a.k.a. wooden plugs, were getting removed to clean out any would-be moisture that could impact a gun's ability to properly fire. So this is something that both sides would have needed to have um, checked on at the last minute before any firing could be done. As I've said before from a previous podcast uh, segment episode, if um, you did not check everything um, internally, then the chances of something happening externally, not just internally, but externally, the chances of that happening are very high to where... um, to where if uh, the proper tasks weren't done ahead of time before any firing took place, chances are that one or more crewmen will get hurt, and it could result in either losing um, a part of their body, not just not to gross you all out, but, um, but when dealing with cannons especially, if you're not careful, you could always run the risk of uh, losing a limb, and if worst-case scenario, uh, death. So, so yes, um, making sure that with uh, the use of the tumpions being the wooden plugs and removing them, yes, it's important to make sure that any would-be moisture gets cleaned out or removed so that it does not uh, impact, so that it doesn't negatively impact a gun's ability to fire. How about uh, various um, multiple missiles being checked thoroughly? If you're on the American side, uh, this is something that the Americans had an advantage to, unlike the British. But the Americans went about litting, a, litting slow matches. What do I mean when I say they go about litting slow matches? It's a procedure known as a slow burning. Slow burning involving a wick or a cord. And what the Americans did here was that by engaging in um, litting, by engaging in the process of litting slow matches or litting slow match, they are slowly burning the wick and the cords, and they are, and they did so by placing them in tu- in tubs of sand, in tubs of sand close to the guns where they would go about um, being used for lighting explosives. 
Well, you've got to have um, ammunition like this right nearby because you can't just holler out, oh, I'm getting low on ammunition. I need help. I need more of supply. You need to have your backup supply right near you so that when you start running out, you've got something to fall back onto. Ships per each side uh, saw their decks. Believe it or not, folks, ships per each side saw their decks get sanded. Now, why would you want to sand the deck? or sand the decks, let alone. By sanding the decks, it was a means of providing better footing. Okay, by providing better footing, that means that you're not going to trip easily. You're not going to fall and, and run the risk of breaking a limb. It also means that you might, um, there's a better likelihood or a much more reduced likelihood of not um, running into another um crewmate of yours to where both of you are knocked out and knocked out to the point where each of you is out of commission. So it may not resolve everything, but by sanding the decks, it is going to modify, it will greatly modify um, unforeseen um, unforeseen uh, situations. And another thing that uh, sanding uh, the deck will also help in terms of um, soaking purposes as we all know, naval battles are tense. And what do I mean by tense? Not so much cannonballs penetrating the, uh, the wooden frames on the outside as well as the inside of the vessels. But people are going to get hurt, folks. I think it's a given, but the reality is, is that, yes, there is blood that um, blood, uh, blood makes its way onto the, um, onto the deck's boards. The presence of sand will help soak up the blood faster. You will also find on that per each side that um, buckets of water are being placed near guns for drinking and extinguishing purposes, to placing um, to as well as uh, buckets of water being placed below uh, gun muzzles. Extra water buckets were also on hand for sponging, that is, uh, gun barrel cleaning. And then you also had extra weapons nearby, like pikes and axes, which were um, used not only to defend yourself when an enemy came onto your ship in terms of crewmen who, uh, from the other side coming to, say, not only seize your cargo, but perhaps seize you, you need to have some weapons to defend yourself so that you don't fall victim to that infamous um, hostile aggression act known as impressment. Even impressment does go on in a time of uh, physical war, not just in times of peace. But in the event, if it's the other way around, what if you're going after the enemy? You need extra weapons as well. You might, yes, you may have a cannon, or yes, you may have a rifle or a musket, but uh, it's kind of nice to have some extra uh, weapons by your side as a means of uh, self-defense. What exactly uh, did Commodore Oliver Perry perform around 11 a.m.? I thought this was, this was powerful, and it's very well worth sharing. But he went about climbing um, the Lawrence's left ship side, but had on hand a large navy blue banner. A large navy blue banner, folks. That uh, that must be something pretty um, 
powerful. It must be something really special. It must be something that's grand, something that's um, motivating, something that can serve as a um, an inspiration of encouragement when the going gets tough. Well, all of those um, descriptions I just mentioned a moment ago, folks, are relevant, and they do pertain to what I'm going to tell you next. This large navy blue banner contained wording in white letters. It had a phrase. That phrase was the following, folks. Don't give up the ship. And if and if I recall from the previous um, podcast back at the start of the week, we um, learned where that phrase came from. Oliver Perry didn't coin that phrase. His um, fellow comrade uh, who uh, served aboard the USS Chesapeake, uh, Captain James Lawrence, whom sadly lost his life, was the one that told his crew right before he died, don't give up the ship. You know, think about it, folks, don't give up the ship, meaning, you know, put up a fight. Don't surrender it right away just because you've been been hit a few times. Fight till the very end. If we lose, at least know that we lost without excuses, but but if we do lose, we'd rather go down with a ship than re- versus surrendering it to the uh, versus physically surrendering it to the enemy. So Perry informed his crew the purpose behind the phrase given the words don't give up the ship or the phrase I, sh- I should say don't give up the ship. Those words per, per um, that phrase based upon what uh, Captain James Lawrence said. Historians know that those were the last to be spoken from Captain Lawrence. Perry went about exclaiming the following, My good fellows, it is not to be hauled down again. In other words, when Captain James Lawrence died, little did he, little did he know that his ship, little did he know that in the aftermath of his ship's defeat that his crew was forced to surrender to the enemy, and it also meant that his crew was sent up to um, Nova Sco- Halifax, Nova Scotia as prisoners of war. Who knows how many of them were released via prisoner exchange? Who knows if more? Uh, who knows if more prisoners died versus more prisoners being released via prisoner exchange? But what Perry knows is that. He doesn't want to be in the same shoes that Captain James Lawrence was in, although Captain James Lawrence did not ask to be put into the situation that he was in. It happened. And did, I mean, he certainly fought left and right to ensure that his crew did not um, surrender without a fight. But for Oliver Perry, he knows now more than ever, with the stakes as high as they are, that this can't happen again, because if it does happen again, not only will it be a crushing defeat for us from a moral standpoint or from a morale standpoint, I, I always say, but it will also mean that Britain will still retain her um, supremacy on Lake Erie. In other words, the job hasn't been uh, completely sealed just yet. Yes, William Henry Harrison's forces did their part by land, at uh, by uh, by defeating the British, 
per two uh, failed siege attempts at uh, Fort Meigs, as well as uh, annihilating Colonel Henry Proctor and uh, Tecumseh, and um, along with uh, the rest of Tecumseh's Indian allies at Fort Stevenson. And, and yes, they had superior numbers, but yet they were literally um, annihilated at Fort Stevenson. So yes, all of those victories were great, but the problem is that the job hasn't been completely sealed just yet. The job by water hasn't. So that this phrase, my good fellows, it is not to be hauled down again. In other words, we're going to fight till the very end, and we're going to um, show the British that who we really are. I mean, we've already proven to them that we've won some battles on um, on on water, largely in part uh, with old Ironsides, USS Constitution. But now we've got um, a whole new ball game here. All crewmen got a ration, or I should say, a serving of uh, grog. Grog is another term for spirits, rum mixed with water. And a midday meal was served around early afternoon time. So remember, folks, we don't get three meals a day. You know, you eat your, like, you probably be eating your breakfast much, much earlier in the morning compared to what some of you might be accustomed to doing so, say, at 8 or 9 o'clock. You're going to probably, at this time in 1813, you're probably going to be eating your breakfast between 5 and 6 a.m. After all, I think it is fair to say that all of the crew have to take shifts or they, they partake in shifts where they're on the lookout you know, you don't get to go to bed on your own time, because if you did that, you, then who's to say you would know how to respond if the enemy struck you out of nowhere? So, um, by the time uh, morning comes around, or in the midst of uh, the morning of uh, September 10th, 1813, drums and fifes begin to strike up with the following... In quotations, all hands, all hands, two quarters, resulting in each man going to the pro to his proper station or place. And at the same time, while each man was going to his proper station or pl as well as place, many officers were in fear for what lied ahead, and went about asking friends to look after their personal matters, aka personal affairs, belongings, because for many of the officers. They weren't sure if they were going to um, live to see another day. Many of them probably knew that perhaps September 10th, 1813 might be the last day of my life. And did I leave a good legacy? Will my family be looked after, especially if I'm married and have children? It's a lot to think about when you are, when your fam when you are away from your family. Uh, did all sailors present on Lake Erie's waters come September 10th, 1813, understand what lied ahead besides engaging the enemy up close? And what I'm going to tell you all next, it's going to be powerful, but let's definitely put ourselves in these men's shoes, knowing that um, the kind of warfare they were engaging in, it was real. It was real-life drama before we even had such a thing as television or an actual uh, news station that could report about it? So the answer is yes. Uh, for starters, uh, naval battles inflicted more terror, a.k.a. carnage, versus uh, the opposite by land. 
But secondly, an unlimited list of unforeseen factors had the potential to play out, such as cannonballs entering the ship's side only to release scores of wood splinters making their way onto decks. Projectiles, folks, going in just about every direction that could um, that could pretty much pierce into a, a sailor or a group of uh, crewmen's bodies without any unforeseen without any kind of warning you know it's one thing for someone to say cannonball coming over duck you know run to this uh run to this side you know you could say that but you may not be so fortunate enough time to get the warning until the actual thing lands and then all of a sudden blows up and it could take you out and again i'm not trying to gross you out but i mean i've seen um i think most of us have seen on uh television um movies like the the first one that came to my mind was uh the patriot with uh, mel gibson and the late heath ledger and how in certain battles uh you could see where uh soldiers on both sides were firing at one another but one side would launch cannons at the other and these cannonballs were so lethal i mean they were hot on the spot to where soldiers didn't see what was coming at them and and there was one scene where a cannonball took out one guy's uh, one of took out one guy's leg. I've, again, I'm not trying to gross you out, but these are some of the horrors that can be inflicted upon with regards to the use of a cannonball, regardless of what side you're on. So, yes, uh, sailors had to worry about um, cannonballs entering the ship's side, only for the the cannonballs to release scores of wood splinters making their way onto the decks. How about the fear of grape shot and canister making its way out from the open end of a barrel, not knowing what direction it will ultimately hit? Uh, canister is where you're packing, um, where you're packing a, a small cluster of, um, like say, three-pound cannonballs or smaller than three-pound, but they're all um, placed into a cloth and they get uh, released and they. They all come out at different angles and directions and can explode just about any point, causing uh, major damage. So there again, um, you know, it's bad enough when it's just one cannonball coming at you. But how about a huge, how about a massive cluster of um, canister or let alone grape shot? How about um, the how about the fear of being raked? What, do I, I, what I mean by being raked here, folks, we're not talking about raking leaves, but the fear of being raked with regards to a single artillery round leading to mass death upon open-decked ship. How about being forced into the water, given many sailors did not know how to swim? Gosh, it'd be so easy to think that all sailors knew how to swim. No, they didn't. So if your ship took a massive direct hit to where it exploded and everybody has been forced into the water fighting for their lives and three-fourths of the crew don't know how to swim. It's one thing to lose um, crewmen due to being shot or uh, being severely wounded, but if you were not shot or wounded and you died by means of drowning, to me that's just that's just as bad and, and sad, I should say. So, yes, it's it's bad enough that many sailors did not know how to swim, but how about the fear of getting wounded? 
knowing there weren't any anesthetics for easing pain with the exception of whiskey to um, being forced to clamp down on a wooden spoon or something rubbery. So many uh, unknowns, folks. Yes, you're serving your country, but at the same time, all the unknowns that... Um, all of the unknowns out there that could um, reduce your chances of survival are not to your advantage. One action rang out on board HMS Detroit just shy of 12 o'clock on September 10th of 1813. At 11.45 a.m., HMS Detroit's band began playing Rule Britannia, only to be followed by the bugle sounding, including HMS Detroit's firing a 24-pounder, which landed not far from USS Lawrence's position. At around 11.50 a.m., a second 24-pounder from Detroit fired again at Lawrence, resulting in her taking a direct hit, which led to flying splinters killing and wounding American sailors. Oliver Perry proceeded forward by ordering schooner vessel Scorpion to open fire through using, 30, through using a 32-pounder, followed by schooner Ariel with her four long 12-pounders. Lawrence, um, HMS, uh, USS Lawrence was still ma able to manage uh, to throw in her weight, meaning she, she may have been hit, but she did not take a massive hit to the point where she was completely out of commission. At this point, though, folks, the Battle of Lake Erie has now officially begun. Once the battle officially began, what were the positionings of each ship's sides, or of each side's ships? The American line appeared initially as hung out. What does that really mean? Well, the American line being hung out, what it really uh, entails is that she was not on a complete straight line, but close enough to where the nine uh, vessels could still be connected together. In other words, they weren't completely far apart from one another. They weren't maybe in a straight unison line, but they were close enough to one another to where um, they could still manage to be connected together. The British, on the other hand, were gathered very tight, close. The, the best way to describe how the British are, are are gathered, even despite the fact that they are gathered very tight and, and close, think of it as like a, a bunch line formation in football where you're on the goal line, and not just offensively, but defensively, where pretty much everyone is stacked right in the middle. Defensively, you know, by being all in the middle, you're anticipating a run and you're going to stop the run. But with uh, the Americans in a, what's called in a hung-out formation, they are um, in different. Um, they're in different semi formations to where um, they're not all going to attack from one side. They've got uh, ships lined from the left and to um, the right. So that that's the way I I can best describe that here. Now for the next thirty minutes, uh, Perry's forces withstood um, enemy fire in the midst of not being able to return damage upon the British. Now, what's going on here? Why is uh, HMS or USS Lawrence struggling? 
Well, Perry did try two broadside approaches where his men fired all guns per one side of the ship, but no results prevailed. Although the British had been regularly firing at Perry's fleet for 30 consecutive minutes, they were unable to yield widespread damage to, uh, to Lawrence's deck. They could, in other words, they could not bring down the masts, a.k.a. vertical spars, to which the yards and the rigging are attached. Lawrence's hurt, USS Lawrence was hurt, but nothing mortal, and all of her guns are still intact. Come 12.15 p.m., the Lawrence eased into a position followed by Perry's orders for opening fire via 32-pounder carronades. An exchange on both sides began that would last over two hours. Talk about intense, though. That, that's the way I'm beginning to wonder. And is it fair to say, starting after 12.15, that the fighting became tense? Yes. Uh, for starters... An exchange of broadsides, a.k.a. firings, all on one ship's sides had taken place at front of the two lines of battle to where Detroit and Lawrence were positioned within point-blank range. Uh, I'm sure many of you all know what point-blank range is, um, but when I read this book, I had to get a better understanding of what it meant by point-blank range. So basically what point-blank range is, it's any distance over which a specific firearm can hit its target without compensating its vertical distance, meaning gun captains did not have to directly aim, but instead just fired level. Detroit and Lawrence were positioned or closed in at around 330 yards for their 32-pounder carronades. The carnage aboard Lawrence is incredible, and it's not for the good reasons. Of course, I know when we think of incredible, we always think of great. But it is fair to say that you can also use incredible when it comes to the not-so-good uh, moments. And when, you know, it's easy, it, you can say, oh, well, they lost incredibly bad, or they were incredibly defeated. Um, it was an, an incredible uh, surrender, so in, in this case, incredible is not for the better. So, yes, carnage aboard the Lawrence was incredible. How so? Well, let's, let's find out about what happened to some of the Lawrence's uh, crew. How about seaman David Bunnell, Bunnell, uh, B-U-N-N-E-L-L, so we'll say Bunnell. Uh, seaman David Bunnell witnessed a fellow sailor in front of him, folks. And I'm not trying to sound graphic here, folks, but this is what happened. Uh, seaman David Bunnell witnessed a fellow sailor nearby get struck in the head via shot per missile from a cannon, resulting in matter getting splattered upon Bunnell's face. Uh, talk about horrifying watching someone in front of you die on the spot. Didn't even get to say goodbye. Uh, didn't get the chance to even be um, examined. I mean, he, he was just taken out out of nowhere. He probably didn't even have time to see what was coming at him. He may have heard a loud sound, but he simply just did not have time to quickly um, get out of harm's way and 
seaman David Bunnell survives this, but I can't imagine having um, matter getting splattered upon not just my face, but say on my arm, leg. That's something you don't get over. Marine Lieutenant Brooks endured traumatic pain as a result of a cannonball breaking his hip and thigh. He sadly died an hour after initially being wounded. Grape shot, ammunition comprised of many small iron balls fired together from a cannon, got Boatswain's mate William Johnson in the chest, which led to fracturing three ribs on his left side to impacting a lung. A wood splinter went about piercing Marine Private David Christie's shoulder. It almost made its way to the hip joint. These are real-life horrors, folks. For those who survived, their lives aren't going to be the same. Who's to say that they might even survive the duration of this war? I mean, because this war is not anywhere near um, ending sight. And, um, and, and there is no such thing in 1813 as uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome either. We should be reminded of that in terms of the horrors of war that uh, took place from uh, generations past, even if it was uh, two centuries ago. Uh, given, Lawrence, uh, given USS Lawrence was a shallow draft vessel built for fighting along the lake, her ward room, where officers normally slept and ate, got converted into a makeshift facility for operating on all those whom were wounded. Dr. Usher Parsons, the junior surgeon, he was the only doctor available because the other um, two surgeons are sick. They're not able to perform. So it's all up to this guy to perform surgical, surgical tasks despite the fact that he has six helpers transporting to carrying uh, the wounded to restraining them during a surgery. So it's, it's one thing for Dr. Parsons to try to um, perform the necessary surgery, but he's got these uh, helpers whom are having to physically restrain the wounded so that they don't, um, so that they don't uh, jeopardize their own safety while Dr. Parsons is trying to perform live surgery on them. For Dr. Parsons, he knows that he can't save everybody. So what he's, got, what he's focusing on is stopping uh, bleeding to um, reduce as well as um, he's working on measures such as stopping the bleeding to um, reduce um, for reducing the pain in terms of a, also that's a, for splinting purposes. In other words, he's going to have to uh, come up with um, means of like creating a hand splint or a um, a splint uh, for your arm so that you're um, so that you're not in any further pain and he's gonna have to do this without some kind of an without any form of modern-day anesthetics well in the midst of lieutenant Barclay focusing all his guns on HMS Detroit against USS Lawrence what did the Royal Navy artillery go about doing at the same time they gradually, over time, reduced American vessels' firing ability, or I should say their range. One British shot struck 
the open end to an American muzzle where hot iron tube shattered and sent small pieces of metal in multiple directions, wounding an entire gun crew. The early settings behind uh, engagement saw American forces using inferior powder charges with their large-sized carronades, leading to many of Lawrence's shots not hitting their intended targets via bulwarks. A bulwark is a defensive wall that is uh, normally located along a ship's sides above deck level. So if, a, if a USS Lawrence was not using inferior powder charges, then there's a very strong likelihood that, there, that her large-sized carronades would have been able to hit the intended targets. By 2.30 p.m. on September 10, 1813, USS Lawrence is in a bad state of condition to where no functioning gun remained intact on her starboard. Her star starboard is the vessel's right side facing upward. Earlier in the day, four out of um, every five men were fit for duty, because we do know that just shy of 90 sailors were not fit for duty because of that um, because of uh, bilious or bilious activity that had resulted in um, vomiting and nausea-like symptoms. And again, I'm not trying to gross you all out, but that's what what happened and what we had learned about from the previous podcast. But yes, earlier in the day, four out, of, four out of every five men are fit for duty. Now they are either wounded or killed. Oliver Perry is unwounded, and he is still full of large-scale fight. He's still got a lot of determination left in him, and that is important because if he doesn't, then, then he probably already knows that uh, that this is a lost cause and then all of a sudden, if he knows that if he doesn't have the full full large scale of fight left in him, then what's the point in having that that phrase up there on uh, on top of Lawrence? You know, don't give up the ship. So with Lawrence being in um, bad state of condition, this fight still has to go on. We're not going to give up the ship. It's not just for for USS Lawrence. It's for the rest of Perry's fleet. But schooners, Scorpion, and Ariel being smaller vessels supported Lawrence per the front of Perry's line. They got positioned by Perry as a means of preventing the enemy from penetrating Lawrence's forward section. Bearing 180 degrees behind Lawrence stood Caledonia, led by Lieutenant Daniel Turner, whom slowed his brig as it got near the British line by going about engaging in a match with a 17-gun um, HMS Queen Charlotte, which proved to be no match for the Americans. Turner's uh, tactic, though, did prevent the Niagara, which was commanded by Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott, from immediate engagement with Queen Charlotte. So we do have to wonder, had um, Lieutenant Turner, um, I don't know if I would say he got in the way on purpose, but if he hadn't pulled the maneuver and um, Niagara was able to make her way immediately that she might have uh, been able to have um, gotten um, that she would have uh, been able to have uh, gotten a good fight underway with um, HMS Charlotte. But the irony to uh, USS Ariel Scorpion and Caledonia is that they weren't supposed to be the primary targets per Lieutenant Barclay's agenda. 
for Lieutenant Barclay, his agenda is to take out H is to take out USS Lawrence. But USS Ariel, Scorpion, and Caledonia served as targets for periodic shots fired from smaller enemy vessels. They suffered damage, but only minor damage with minimal losses. So, had these three ships suffered some severe losses, then victory is just victory is just a block down the road, in a sense, for Lieutenant Barclay. For if Lieutenant Barclay is to get victory, or if he is to attain victory, it would have to be centered upon dismantling the Lawrence before Niagara could come about. So it, it, it's kind of fair to say, on, on one hand, that um, Lieutenant Robert Barclay has put his eggs all in one basket by, by going after um, USS Lawrence. But at the same time, his crew has done a pretty uh, powerful job of uh, taking Lawrence out of the uh, fight. Well, um, we've covered a lot of ground, and this wraps up um, our time uh, with this um, podcast segment episode to a signal victory. But when I am on the air again next, we are going to uh, discuss the uh, second part to the Battle of Lake Erie, which will um, we will learn more about the three um, ships that I did mention about Ariel, Scorpion, and Caledonia, and what they were able to do in terms of uh, keeping... Um, Lieutenant Barclay from um, from coming away with a solid victory um, at that uh, given moment, given that uh, USS Lawrence come 2.30 in the afternoon of, uh, of uh, September 10th, 1813, has pretty much been um, now deemed out of uh, commission. We will also learn more about Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott's um, situation on the Niagara. So... Um, We've got more ground to cover, but more ground that's going to be uh, worth um, the time to um, to explore and to uh, discover. But uh, thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Uh, without you guys, I'm not sure where I would be, but I do thank you all. And continue to uh, get the word out to those who uh, want to know more about uh, important historical events. Take care for now, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. <music>